anthropology, I would hear about sort of the way that the, the society is shaping the individual to meet its demands through rites of passage. And it was only when I went into the existential spiritual piece in which it was where people were seeking. They were trying to make meaning. They were um, often, by the way, the way the mothers were talking, it really felt like um, very similar to people who did go on spiritual journeys, right? Who had learned um, the tenets of unconditional love, of, um, you know, learning forgiveness, often of um, their own parents, of um, learning to test, you know, their, their attachments um, to outcomes and to be more open-ended and to have trust and surrender was often a really big idea. Welcome to the Pollination Mamas podcast. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land where I live, the Biripai people, and all other First Nations people within Australia. I aim to bring you collaborative conversations, cross-pollinating as we span our wings, connecting the threads of ancestral wisdom in a modern context so that we can live a nurtured life. I believe ancestral wisdom provides a roadmap to a regenerative culture, contributing to thriving communities, healing and health. The gorgeous little song that you heard in the intro and the outro is called The Littlest Birds. It was performed by the Oluca family band from the Olive Gap Farm. It was originally performed by the Be Good Tanyas and generously sponsored by the Olive Gap Farm, which is a certified organic family farm specialising in small batch native essential oils and seasonal cut flowers. I highly recommend checking out their tea tree oil online. They are located on Bundjalung country in the northern rivers of New South Wales, Australia and draw on inspiration from various sustainable farming practices to create a high quality product that's equally nourishing to us and the earth. You can check out links to their website and social media in the show notes. Hi everyone, welcome to another Pollination Mamas podcast. Today I've got Aurelie Athan. I've done this a few times. I usually check in with the name and then I get to this point in the podcast and I go, oh, I haven't checked in. So hopefully I pronounced your name right there, Aurelie. Is that right? That's right. Actually, very good. Yeah, well done. Even with my Aussie accent. (laughs) I love Um, it. So Aurelie is a clinical psychologist and faculty member at the Teachers College at Columbia University in New York. And Orly has been really key in reviving the term matrescence, which many of you may have heard of. And she's revived that through education theory and her practice. So I'm going to um, hand over to Orly to give a little bit of background of matrescence and how she was inspired to shift that language from anthropology into mental health practice. So thanks so much for being here, Orly. Well, thank you very much for having me, Shelley. And um, I, I hope I pronounced your name as well correctly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good. <laughs> um, you know, what's in the name? Well, that that might be sort of a fun way to start um, because you know words and names are important. They they shift our thinking. They create worlds, and that's what matrescence did for me. So I'm really pleased that um, you know the word is sort of taking root in the world and and creating maybe a shift of how we're thinking about the transition to motherhood. Um, of course, I'm not the one who, um, you know, created this concept. We owe that to Dana Raphael, who was a medical anthropologist. 
at Columbia University as well in the 70s and unfortunately probably didn't get um, much credit um, at the time. She's most well known for for coining the word doula, but her work uh, I think is really foundational and and well known probably in midwifery circles and and in the birthing community, but certainly not in psychology where I come from. So you know I'd say that the origin story for me, um, you know where my aha moment started, has a little bit of a, a backstory. Um, it, would that be okay to tell tell that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we love a backstory. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I, I started uh, researching the transition to motherhood very early on in, in, in my 20s, I would say, um, when I was a psychology graduate student and I was actually working with my mentor who herself was transitioning to parenthood. And I, I already had um, a natural affinity to look at reproductive health and I was interested in women's lifespan development and women's psychology and women psychological models, which I knew were absent and lacking to begin with. Um, a lot of the sort of theories of psychology were often based, like developmental theories, like how you become an adult, were often, you know, based on, on men's sort of worlds. And I knew that was missing. Um, and when we were sort of talking about, you know, her experience, we were also um, talking about it from a spiritual developmental point of view. I was very much interested in spiritual development. So that was another model that was lacking. There was a lot out there on like cognitive development and moral development, but sort of how people had existential shifts. Maybe that's even a kind of more broader term. Um, you know, she was studying it actually in youth and in children and adolescents. And so the question came about as to whether the same kind of opening happened when you started to transition to parenthood as we, you know, think about how we raise children. So there's a lot of also theories about mothers, but really mostly about how child outcome, right? How they shape their children, very little about themselves um, in particular. So long story short, um, it started me on a journey of looking up information about um, reproductive health and existential thinking. And I found a heck of a lot on, um, on you know, reproductive cancers and sort of surviving uh, reproductive health scares. So that's when, you know, women would talk about sort of having a worldview shift, right? You know, on every level, on the level of their body, um, their physiology, their relationships, um, their work, their relationship to, um, you know, their priorities and what is most meaningful in their life. So there was almost nothing on, on, on their entry into sort of their reproductive window around menses and then of course, you know, bringing forth life into the world, not only death defying experiences. So that was a real kind of, that gave me a real pause. I just didn't understand why that wouldn't be there. And um, it started, you know, a near decades long detective story to try and find it. And I had to leave my uh, field of origin. I really had to go into other places and um, psychology was just, and of course I'm a clinical psychologist, so I don't blame the field. It's, it's diagnostically driven. Um, but I think that psychology, clinical psychology and psychiatry to this day might have too much um, power in shaping the narratives. Um, right now, we don't have enough kind of more developmental theories and more theories about normative transition. So I went to anthropology because that's they study right, rites of passage. Um, I went to other um, fields outside as well, and I started to weave together bits and baubles. So long story short, I'll come to sort of a, a nice little aha moment. Um, definitely came across Dana Raphael's work. I came through it through another article um, by Trudell, I believe, which it was thinking about motherhood as a transcendent experience. Um, and so I had been reading and understanding Matrescence like transcendence. That was, you know, I, I, I didn't know it as adolescence until, you know, in one of my lab meetings with my students and I'm teaching this course on the transition to motherhood and trying to get everybody around to realize, hey, you know, women are describing the same 
things, you know, they're having body changes and relationship changes, these big eye-opening holistic changes that we saw in survivors of reproductive um, cancers. And this is, this is not just a pathological response. You know, this is um, them having a really um, paradigm sort of shift. Uh, uh, their whole mindset um, is changing. And that's when, um, you know, I remember them saying, Dr. Ethan, that's, that's not metrescence like transcendence. It's, I was trying to say it was like transcendental or transformational. It's like adolescence. And that's when the penny dropped. Of course it was. I think I was just, you know, so, so um, immersed in the lens of spirituality that I was looking for anything that would tell me that it was a transcendent experience <laughs> that I didn't see it. And when the blinders dropped, then, you know, I knew I can remember exactly where I was and when it happened. And then I said, that's it. We just kind of cracked the code. And it took, you know, years after that in my classroom to really hone in, um, you know, a phrasing, a way of getting people to see it immediately. So I didn't have to convince them, you know, it almost used to take like 10 weeks into the class before anybody would sort of get, get it. And, um, you know, with that refinement in the first week, I say, matrescence like adolescence and go, just start riffing on that. Tell me about your adolescence. And from there, people started to understand that even if they hadn't been parents themselves, that this was really, you know, a, a, a really big, big, you know, transition period. So that's the story. Wow. I love that. I love that it came from one of your students, right? So that aha moment. Uh, that's amazing. And I also like that you were on the kind of track of seeing it as transcendent, which I feel like as you were telling the story, sort of you were looking and you were opening your mind and that was opening your perception of it even more by viewing it as a transcendent experience to then allow that concept of the transformation like adolescence to come in. What a great story. And, yeah, Dana Raphael, she really um, was such a, you know, pioneer and really spearheaded that and, like you say, probably didn't get a lot of um, recognition. I first came across Matrescence through learning about Dana Raphael as well. Mm. Mm, wow. And oh, so many things that I was thinking as you were talking. I like the idea that when you mentioned that even if someone hadn't become a parent they could relate to it through their own adolescence so they can really go oh right yeah okay took a lot of growing pains and there was ups and downs and there were so many changes on a holistic level that psychological social emotional hormonal biological level people can really get the enormity of it how huge it is and were you working in private practice at this point and seeing that in your one-on-one -on -one work as well with mothers? Mm. Yeah, I'm happy to answer that question. If I may backtrack for a moment first, I want to thank you very much for your sort of noting that, you know, looking for the kind of biggest picture there is on that kind of transcendental level, let me see it. And, um, you know, that, that really clicks for me. I want to thank you for that, that if it wasn't for that almost like, what I call parapraxis, almost that Freudian slip, you know, it wouldn't have opened up my consciousness because I knew when they were talking to me. So this sort of um, clicks into this other question that you're saying, you know, was I in clinical practice? I was not at the time yet, but I was doing a lot of one-on-one -on -one interviews with mothers. So I was doing a lot, a lot of qualitative interviews, like dozens and dozens, which is kind of like quasi-clinical work. And what I was hearing in their stories were, you know, they didn't, they, they couldn't articulate what was happening to them. It sounded a lot more like the studies I had done in people who had sort of peak experiences or um, um, what do you call it? Um, like existential, you know, awakenings or spiritual awakenings, you know, where they might've had a, um, you know, a moment in which they, they found God or something like that. Like an epiphany. And yeah, epiphanic experiences. Thank you very much. Yeah. So it sounded almost like there were your drug experiences. I mean, they were really kind of talking like, 
I can't describe it to you, but this is what I think is happening to me. And, and at times, you know, they didn't love it, right? It wasn't because it, it kind of rocked their world, right? Um, and other times they were still trying to even make sense of it. So there was a lot of struggle in these stories because they didn't have a framework. You know, nobody told them that it would be like this, right? So you often hear nobody told me it was going to be like this when you hear about like postpartum depression or when you hear the sort of negative side of it. But I heard a different, deeper register in what they were saying. They were saying, I can't make sense of the paradox of the experience, of how it's both the most empowering and crippling experience I'm having, about how I can love so much bigger than I ever thought, and yet it's testing my patience and my ability to be present, um, and it's painful. And it feels like a spiritual practice, like rolling, rolling the ball back and forth a hundred times is what you might do at the ashram, you know, um, sweeping, sweeping the courtyard. So they, they were struggling and it felt like spiritual struggle. It was just bigger. And so I was trying to see it from that point of view and using all of the language, because um, each field has its own linguistic structure. Like if I started to read feminist readings and from women's studies, then I would hear about the oppressive institution of motherhood and um, you know, how um, it's, it's done us wrong, which it has in many ways, right? And if I read in the field of, of clinical psychiatry and psychiatry, I would, I would hear about sort of symptoms and cognitive um, depressogenic ideas. And if I went into um, anthropology, I would hear about sort of the way that the, the society is shaping the individual to meet its demands through rites of passage. And it was only when I went into the existential spiritual piece in which it was where people were seeking, they were trying to make meaning. They were um, often, by the way, the way the mothers were talking, it really felt like um, very similar to people who did go on spiritual journeys, right? Who had learned um, the tenets of unconditional love, of um, you know, learning forgiveness often of um, their own parents, of um, learning to test, you know, their, their attachments um, to outcomes and to be more open-ended and to have trust and surrender was often a really big idea. So, you know, that's a long way of saying that um, I appreciate your comment. And um, it was through directly listening to the subjective felt experiences of women, which is really what, um, you know, these feminist qualitative researchers and thinkers taught me to do is that I had to talk to women to hear what they had to say um, and have them tell me and try to make sense of what they were doing. So I asked very open-ended questions. I didn't lead the witness. I would just ask things like, um, what brought you to become a mother? Or what are you learning? as a result of mothering. I really saw mothering like Sarah Ruddick as a verb, uh, as a practice that had a teaching in it, that had some kind of answers that came from it, just like gardening. You know, you start gardening, you start taking care of the land and um, nature starts giving you feedback and children do the same. So, you know, that, that was really important. And in fact, the very same interview questions that I use, I now have my students do, many of whom are of the age that they haven't decided whether they're having a family or not, um, and couldn't step into the shoes of a mother. So, you know, your other comment is also really important. I used to be told that, you know, oh, you know, you should only really do sort of women's studies or work with mothers. The only experts are those who would, who are mothers um, themselves. But I thought that was sort of strange because we we don't say that of like a geriatrician in the making you know um you don't have to be one <laughs> to 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 be with one so i think it's really important that we actually also drop the walls between the have and the have nots of those with and without children 
to understand one another. Cause I think that's part of the warring, like the, like W A R, you know, the warring mm. um, that can happen, you know, where um, that, that actually is one of the reasons why I've started pursuing theorizing another theory of reproductive identity to say that we all have a relationship to this concept of our reproductive life of, of parenthood. I, I very much see mom like God, everybody, whether you believe in it or not, or whatever, we all have an ideology and a relationship to this massive concept. Um, and so we, we have to start talking to one another rather than sort of um, splintering into groups and tribes and getting tribal about it, which as you know, even within motherhood itself, it can be a very tribalistic community. Mm, yeah, so important. As you were talking, I was really thinking about how it ties into that concept of, well, this is really important for the individual, say the woman or the birthing person who's becoming a parent, mother, and also collectively as a community. And this is touching on what you're saying, whether not saying only mothers can work with mothers or you can only understand when you've been through it. And there is a truth to that. There is like a deep kind of embodied um, mm -hmm. understanding if you've been through something, but also we need everyone in our community, practitioners, the, the butcher, the, <laughs> the baker, everyone, the teacher to understand what a huge passage, rite of passage it is and what a tr huge transformation it is because that will filter into little everyday interactions and into language and, and then that person can feel a little bit more understood and held in that transformation as well. And I can tell listening to you, even though I have been looking at this for years and really like delving into various personal studies, still even listening to you, I feel like you've embodied it and I can really hear how you've dedicated your career and your time and your life to this understanding and it comes through your words, but I could just feel it like sitting in my body and hitting my heart as you were speaking. I was like, wow, she's really sat there and listened and um, taken this in on many levels, not just an intellectual level. So yeah, I commend you to, um, to dedicating your work to that and to listening to women, first of all, just going and listening to those mothers and taking mm -hmm. that in without any preconceived idea. And I feel like it, it highlights as well how our, we do tend to live in a world where things get categorised instead of um, crossing a gr a, going across modalities and creating a holistic picture. So you had to go to anthropology to really start to find clues and answers and how we should be doing this so much more. And in I know a lot of people that have come to postpartum work have gone back to anthropology in a sense so traditions what are the traditions what are the commonalities in postpartum care or understanding birth or motherhood or parenthood and how have we lost them and how can we integrate that in a modern way mm. which I, I guess is where I see you're so dedicated to educating and providing new language and new framework for this understanding via your education and your publications you mentioned so can you feel a little, can you share a little bit about how um, you feel it's important to normalise this idea of matrescence and why it's important to offer a non-pathological description, so not necessarily only focusing on postpartum depression, anxiety. Um, yeah, to kind of bring this into our community a little bit more, into our culture and our society, I guess. Sure. Um, you know, I think, I think it started first, like I said, as um, also creating, filling the gaps and um, creating what I didn't have. So, you know, fast forward, um, the, the biggest difference was that I just was never trained, I think, sufficiently in this area. And thankfully now more kind of, you know, perinatal um, training is being offered to like medical students and so on and so forth. Because the only thing I knew, and like you said at the beginning, that if I said postpartum, you know, most people would sort of conflate it with depression. And so I, I knew that it was very important. We were in a time of actually um, bringing enlightenment to that, you know, because we're still coming out of an age in which um, it was only supposed to be a positive experience. And so that was important. 
but I was sort of interested in the silent majority in the middle, um, you know, meaning, and then on the other side, maybe just only loving it. Um, but I was, I was really trying to understand that how do we know what divides what, um, when things go wrong from what is, does it look like when it's sort of on its way, well on its way? Um, and that's just a question we ask typically in, in, as a clinician in order to make it, um, you know, pathological, you'd sort of want to know about the degree and frequency, right, you know, of, of the problem. So I had to pull back and just ask the kind of more kind of generic question of what does motherhood look like? And so that that is, again, why it was important to go and, and talk to mothers themselves, because you said something important, the embodied experience. Yes, for sure. We need to create a society that um, isn't afraid of, of um, being curious about mothers' experiences so that we don't leave them to their um, own devices. You know, many countries don't even have good support systems in terms of medical care or even family policies and things like that. So it has to be a barn raising. We all have to lift the roof of, of family care together. But if you want to ask what's happening to mothers um, in their daily life, you have to ask a mother. <laughs> and, and that, um, when I was hearing them talk, they were kind of constantly asking me, is there something wrong with me? <laughs> or am I crazy? Or is this normal? You know, th that was the, the almost most common refrain. And so I think it was very important um, to answer their question, to know what is the difference between when I really do need to get an intervention in here um, uh, because I'm hurting in, in a way that, um, you know, my functioning, I, I can't cope. Um, and it's, I'm in a place of, of harm versus this is a, this is a struggle that um, is also going to be fruitful in some kind of way. And that might have take some time to get used to and, also means that there might not be something wrong with me where I have to get more perfect, but maybe it has something to do about looking around me and looking about who's holding me, just like I hold the child in order for them to come and become and come into their own being and selfhood. So who's doing that for me? And so a lot of times, and now that I am, you know, when I moved into my actual direct clinical work and coaching that I, I, that's my first question is I really do an assessment of their, you know, their support system and all of that, because who's midwifing their consciousness into this new experience. So, you know, with, with adolescence, even before the term was coined, they used to think it was just children going crazy on the way to adulthood. Um, and it took actually bringing the term adolescence. That was not even a word at the time either. Um, and then with it, um, trying to understand the bio, psycho, social, existential, right, um, changes that were happening. And that's when we started to look at puberty. That's when we started to understand about peer groups and the importance of peer groups. Um, the identity uh, questions that were coming up for, for children on the way to adulthood. And we start now to see that that's normal, right? That that's something that... Um, we would expect, including, by the way, the, you know, the, the storm and strife, you know, the push and pull of, of uh, a teenager who's trying to come into themselves. Um, the same thing, um, you know, can be offered to women. And I think that's very important for them to not say there's something wrong with me, but rather, um, you know, let me look at how I'm coping with this. What are my support systems? Where are my pain points and growth points? What is really rocking my boat here? What are the bigger questions that this has evoked in my life? How do I want to rework my life? Can I rework my life? What are the places um, um, that can shift along with me? What are the things that I have to abandon or let go? And certainly it's not about me looking back. Everybody's always asking me when I'm going to go back backwards, you know, back to my old genes, back to work, you know, all these sort of pejorative sayings, but really, you know, forward. And what is the growth um, that I, I'm experiencing? Or what, are the, what is the shift? 
and, and what is the change? Because it seems almost like I'm expected to not change, not feel the change, and also and, and just go back to the way things were. When really, um, they're saying nothing is the same, and I'm having to also mourn that, just as an adolescent might feel nostalgic for their childhood, um, and may not yet feel ready for the for the responsibilities or other kind of um, you know, future things that they, they, that are yet to be written for them. So I think it's incredibly important to give that mapping to women so that they know it's going to take some time. Um, and that, by the way, the other thing that's important about this and that's different than anthropology, which I really love that people are, you know, especially in the, um, you know, doula and, and um, professionals in the birthing space are doing or looking cross-culturally to see kind of what have many cultures done. But one thing that anthropology doesn't do well, I think, is look at individual differences. So uh, I'll connect that in a minute, which means to say that, you know, even when I talk to a lot of women from different cultures, even if, yes, that particular um, person had the support that maybe another person in a different country didn't have, it didn't mean they always loved it, right? So if your mother-in-law comes and lives with you or if you're put on bed rest or, you know, all of these things, right. And you're chuckling cause you get it is that it really depends. You know, there are individual personalities in here. And so sometimes rites of traditional, um, you know, rituals are kind of a one size fits all. And, um, and sometimes, you know, they don't, there's not a lot of space for a woman to sort of have dissent around those things or to kind of pick her own. On the other extreme, if you're left without any of these traditions, well, then a woman just has all the choices uh, and yet none, no support whatsoever because it's, you know, it's up to her to kind of figure it out. So, you know, you know, in the individual differences storyline of the transition to motherhood and matrescence like adolescence, What's also important is that each person has kind of a difficult, um, a, a difference in difficulties and opportunities, just like in adolescence, meaning that um, for one person, you know, the hormones were really rough, but for another, it wasn't, you know, no one got the pimples, you know, for another person, it was really difficult at the level of peer groups um, for adolescents. So if we say that for women, as mothers, maybe their marital relationship for one woman is the one that got hit the most, or for another, it might've been her um, employment. So it's, it's also really important to know that while we may all go through it, we all go through it quite different, differently. Um, and the person who goes through it um, needs to really understand their own story and then also, the last thing I'll say is that we also need to apply uh, multifinality to it. And what I mean by that is the same thing, whereas with adolescence, we sort of know any person who goes through it, well, they may end up on an infinite number of different pathways on the other side. We never say to a teen, you know, you're all going to all end up the same. But for mothers, there's almost this, for women going through motherhood, there's almost this one capital M mother that it's all expected to sort of converge on that we all sort of arrive at when really there are just so many stories of little M mothers and it's incredibly important to let a woman welcome her independence in coming through that pathway where she's not needing to model onto anybody else's map at the same time so there's real paradox even in that Mm. Yeah, there really is. I feel like uh, as you were talking, I was thinking to ask you that what your thoughts are, and I feel like you answered it along the way on on how it was that we sort of lost that such a clear understanding of the rites of passage that are needed at adolescence and then matrescence and other key moments in time. Because as I mentioned in before we started recording, I come from a social work background. I actually worked in homelessness and refuges. So I actually worked in a youth refuge initially and then I went into women's and children's refuges. So I can really relate to a lot of this and thinking about 
that individual um, approach that you would take with each person. How old were they when they came into the youth refuge? What was their background? What were they needing? Where were they struggling? And then again with the women in the women's shelter, and it's exactly the same. And I was thinking, how do we lose this understanding of rites of passage? But at the same time, there has been, it's almost like there was a, a necessary growth that needed to happen or a shift and a change to let go of, like you said, the dogma that can come from following mm. cultural traditions for tradition's sake. Um, I was at a kind of special time now where we can go, oh, I think we threw the baby out with the bathwater in some cultures, not all, and completely lost um, most of our cultural care practices and understanding to guide a mother. But we're at a unique place where we can pick and choose a little bit based upon individuality. So what feels right? Someone might not want someone in their home 24-7 for a month. <laughs> However... Once you've been left alone, as I've learnt, it's it's really it's a struggle, and to be able to ask for people to come in after that um, experience can be hard. So I feel like you've you've sort of answered that. It's like culturally, we needed to let go to redefine in a way. Also, yeah. there was something else you were saying. Um, yeah, I've lost my train of thought in that. But I, I love the idea that you are kind of calling that in as like a community call to reframe this idea, but also individually as a mother to take on uh, their own sort of awareness. And I feel like a lot of the time as mothers, we do internalise it. I know I've been through all of those thoughts that you mentioned. What's wrong with me? Am I going crazy? Why am I not enjoying this as much? Why is it so hard? Why didn't anyone tell me? All of the things that come up. And often if we're not identifying as having postpartum depression or anxiety, we're just sort of um, baseline struggling. <laughs> it's sort of this norm that's been created <clears throat> of um, that it's hard and it's a struggle, but we don't really talk about it because I'm not sure if other people are struggling. And that's really changing. I feel like it's a great revolution around that now with the conversation coming out. But I feel like it needs to be identified that it's okay to reach out for help with someone like yourself or um, any kind of practitioner that someone's called to with an understanding of matrescence to guide you through it because it is there is tough, aspects to it like in adolescence we don't expect the teenager to know how to just go shopping and pay the bills and, and operate in the adult world there's like a slow process of guidance and we really need that with motherhood too and I feel like practitioners like yourself help with that grand identity shift that happens it's like who am I now the world expects me just to be a mother and go back to who I was at the same time and that isn't possible <laughs> I'm redefining and it can be such a really uh, it can be such a beautiful opportunity for spiritual growth but also sort of an identity shift and a recreation of oneself sort of an upgrade in a way but that needs help and guidance uh, with someone who understands that concept of matrescence and do you feel like in private practice if people are able to reach out and gain some insights and, and talk it out and really be held through that process that they are able to kind of embrace that identity shift a lot easier and, and um, come out of struggling fairly quickly. And I, by coming out of struggling, I mean embrace the more challenging parts what are you seeing in pra private practice there with women that are coming in, not necessarily with postpartum depression, but sort of redefining that need for extra support? Yes. I mean, I, and yes to everything that you said, um, there, there are many much needed spaces to help a woman, um, you know, through her own development. She shouldn't just be, personally developing herself only or picking herself up through her bootstraps, just like adolescents. I mean, they have parents for, for Pete's sake, at least, right. <laughs> you know, they have some kind of um, guides, um, you know, some Sherpas, somebody who's maybe a couple of steps ahead to say, you know, you still have to climb this mountain. 
you know, yourself, I can't put you on my back, you know, um, but I can show you where to put your feet and, you know, where the pitfalls are and, you know, watch out. So uh, it, that's the way I operate. And, and it's been, you know, extremely helpful. You know, I, you, you, you can't tell a person, you know, the punchline of the story, you know, they have to kind of read the book themselves, but I do give them language and a framework and the basics. Right. Um, and, um, so, so yes, it kind of reminds me of the question, like, should people go to birth preparation? Will that actually help them have a positive birth? You know, until, until they get there, they won't really know it. So I really believe in education. Um, not only intervention after the fact, I, I really believe in educating someone about what their, um, you know, experiences may be. And as they're having them um, describe, you know, and normalize what's happening, it, first of all, it, it reduces the fear a lot. And you're talking about this sort of like struggle, you know, there's not even like specific language, even in, in journals, you know, we call it like maternal distress, right? Kind of, if you don't meet the criteria for the, the stronger stuff, it's just called this sort of distress. Um, well, it still sucks. <laughs> and it, it, and if you can lower a mother's, you know, distress and cortisol levels and bring self-compassion and bring compassion, which is actually the word I wanted to use a lot earlier, um, to have them bring compassion to these experiences that may be unavoidable, but it can soften the blow to the ego and the need to, as I say, get more perfect. And um, it, 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 allows them to also, um, you know, bolster their coping and reach out for support and voice their needs and start to even become activists in their own life to make some kind of critical changes, even if they're small, even if they are to have a day of self-care off a week or um, to, to, engage a therapist so that they can explore some of the things that might be coming up for them, like past traumas. Um, I, I think it's an, a critically important thing. And I think whatever I've done with matrescence is actually very almost basement first floor level stuff. What I mean is look at what you said about working in, in the, with youth, right? It's very basic. You would ask things like, you know, how did you get here? You know, what, what is your past history? Um, all of those things, those are kind of foundational ways in which we would approach anyone. And yet that we haven't done it with women becoming mothers because we think it's instinctual um, or automated or um, sort of universal and the same for most everyone um, has been problematic. So the minute we allow for a biopsychosocial framework, we can start doing what we call an assessment, right? So it works really well for me, even working with women, when I just do an assessment, where I just ask them their questions in each domain. Um, a lot of times women are only asked about their physiology when it comes to motherhood, um, not past experiences of trauma, for example, um, or how they're feeling about the experience. And certainly after birth, sometimes they will only see a pediatrician who then begins to ask those questions of their children. So even just what I would like to tell your audience is that even just asking a mother how she is and, and doing a thorough assessment, and you don't even have to be a doctor to do that, about each domain of her life and where um, she might be in distress and where she might need some help, plain and simple help and to reduce the shame and stigma around needing help. And that could be around from help from, like I said, babysitting, something as basic, from help around um, you know, marital strife um, to even um, you know, basic things like you know, house cleaning and, and all of that, or um, you know, even nursing you know, or feeding her children and how she feels about that. So, you know, in the end, what I hope is actually that a proliferation of different kinds of professionals can surround her. I mean, my class is actually called, um, you know, kind of like mother-child matrix, a matrix of professionals to surround her, just like a teenager has, 
you know, places, touch points from the school, you know, to the doctor and everything in between. Um, she too, and we need a whole plethora of uh, paraprofessionals, you know, for, for mothers. We need matrescence educators, just like there's childbirth educators. Um, we need, um, you know, the doctors to be trained, you know, so on and so forth. I hope that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it does. Yeah, and even just that acknowledgement that it is, <laughs> matrescence is a thing. What you're going through is normal. And let's look at who you are as an individual to to be able to go through that in um, in the best way possible to get you thriving. And it's it just seems crazy once you've um, kind of had that aha moment that matrescence is a thing <laughs> and that it needs a lot of support and being held and understanding that it's taken so long because the ripple effects out into baby and childhood development and then into community and social well-being are quite clear but yeah I love that you're talking about it as a matrix and looking at where that can how it can be expressed in different ways in the community well Oli I thank you so much for the wonderful work you're doing you must have seen quite a bit of change how many years have you been working in this field now at 15 and yeah there has been yeah, and, and quite an explosion in the last few years, do you, do you feel? In, in which sense? Do you mean around matrescence or, you know, perinatal health? or oh, In the awareness of matrescence within a sort of media and mainstream understanding of that and it, uh, filtering out into different fields. Yeah, there's been a diaspora of the term, um, you know, even you, you know, reaching out, you know, to, you know, from other nations and things like that. So, yeah, I'd say about three, three, yeah, about three years, three to five years. There was a softening first. Um, I'll tell you the history of it is first, you know, positive psychology coming and becoming more mainstreamed and wellness mainstreaming. Mm. So I'd give that about, um, you know, five to ten years beforehand. So when people are starting to, and I forgot that was kind of a critical part of the story, which is, you know, getting out of first destigmatizing mental health, right? It's kind of peeling the layers of the onion. Then more people kind of adopting wellness practices and using positive psychology, um, you know, frameworks like acceptance and compassion and grit and um, all of that. And then, you know, more and more confessionals around perinatal mental health and then the Me Too movement and women's sort of more empowering and, and voicing their, their struggles. And the zeitgeist just clicked into place for it. So since then, the diaspora and the spread of the term and into the public consciousness has been very powerful. And I'm very pleased to see it because one of the things that I had to, I, I used to feel very overwhelmed about how am I going to get it out there or how will people begin to adopt it? And it's happening organically and I'm thrilled and I'll tell you why, because then it, it sort of allowed me to pull back and just create to theorize, you know, I had to really kind of concentrate and say, what, where is my, where are my efforts best placed? Um, and, and it's really in creating the theoretical language and frameworks and in writing and putting it down like bio, this is a biopsychosocial framework. So then, you know, the practitioners out there can just take it, right? And they can use it and see it and apply it. And that might be anywhere from a, law, a lawyer doing family practice, you know, all the way to all the other paraprofessionals that we talked about. Um, you know, maybe it'll proliferate even new, um, new professions. And then trickling down and irrigating into the direct end user of the mother. The fact that she can use it to understand herself, like you said, um, um, and then even go out. And that means that she can go out and actually seek um, the supports and professionals that she needs. So it's happening and I'm delighted. I'm absolutely delighted. And if it means, you know, that it even ends up being um, yeah, a skincare cream, which ap apparently it is now. <laughs> There's a skincare cream. That. Yeah. Trust, right? um, you know, is Dana Raphael up, uh, up there, you know, winking and, and saying, hey, you know, <laughs> why not? Great. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. But most, you know, joking aside, actually, the thing that um, I, I hope that it will do is actually create an interdisciplinary field, just like adolescence, an arena where the um, roundtable of professionals all come together and start talking to one another. Because once you have the neuroscientist now who's studying the brain changes of the mother, right? Mm. And you have on the other side the, um, you know, the, the, the legal um, scholar who is creating uh, policies that actually create uh, rest and support for a mother um, after birth, let's say even paid leave, Wow, now we have, now we have something. Hey there, I'm Julia. I'm interrupting this podcast to let you know that if you are really enjoying this podcast, you'll probably really enjoy newborn mothers too. We provide online courses for professionals and mothers worldwide who believe birth is about making mums too. You'll find all the links in the show notes. Enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah, and I really feel like it is happening and that must be so wonderful for you after all these years to see that coming out into pop culture but also into the professional arena as well and really filtering out and you've probably heard of Dr Oscar Serilac who wrote the postpartum depletion cure so he's a GP and he was noticing this and he uses the term matrescence as well and really wants other GPs to use it so yeah it's it's really broad and I commend you on on really dedicating this time to it and creating a new language because it's so, so important whenever we're going to create cultural shifts is to be able to have a language and especially, so aside from the professionals, the mothers in a time when, you know, we've got the baby brain and that that's a whole other topic that we won't go into now. I'm so glad that neuroscientists are researching that now, but the time when your whole world's been thrown upside down and you're sleepless to have some language around it is so important to have someone to help you um, be able to explain it a little bit better. So thank you so much for sharing all of that wonderful knowledge and also your future vision and hopes and your observations of that timeline. That's quite interesting too, to look back at that, the awareness of mental health and then wellness, very much sort of self-care focused and now branching out to community care realizing we can only do so much ourselves individually that we need to both do it um, individually and collectively. So I'd love for you to share a little bit um, about your courses. You've got a publication that came out just a few months ago on reproductive identity, I believe, and um, your practice and where people can uh, find you. Well, thank you. And, you know, my, my one um, weaving sentence, you know, when you mentioned Dr. Sarilak, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just so delighted and I'm going to ask, you know, your audience, um, whoever is out there that may, what, whatever field you are an expert in or that you practice in, what would the concept of matrescence make you do differently or seek what new questions would that open up for you? And that's what gets me very excited because then if everybody takes the term as a lens and applies it into their field of study, what would it do to shift how they do what they do best? How would it change our birthing practices? How would it change, you know, everything that you just said? Um, That's really important because that's um, the point. So for what I can offer um, in, in terms of matrescence and its implications for mental health, um, I am trying to make it um, a, a point of interest to create developmental models, not just clinical models. That's how I'm, I'm shifting it, that we need adult developmental models. And that is actually what the new paper is about. Um, there was a a, a paper in the American psychologist that was a call for papers on new adult development models. You know, there's been even something called emerging adulthood. That's a new term, right? So now it's not only you're a child and then an an adolescent and then an adult, but you're also an adolescent and then an emerging adult, you know, those kind of early years where you're kind of figuring it out. So, um, I, I wrote a paper called reproductive identity. So in short, you know, I'll just start describing that paper and then I'll end with the classes, um, and some concrete information for your audience. 
but um, you know, this would be a whole other podcast in itself. So I'll be brief, but just mm-hmm. like we have, um, you know, gender or uh, gender identity and sexual identity, sexual orientation identity and racial identity and, you know, all these different types of identities, um, which a, they're developmental, right? You might not figure out some of these things and how you feel about them. Um, they take time to sort of come into your full identity around these, these dimensions of ourself. Um, sometimes they're not binary, right? It's not either or, um, but it might be some, something um, along the spectrum. And so I just posed, well, what about our reproductive life? And why is that absent? Especially, you know, we have something called the Sexuality, Women, and Gender Project. Um, it's a collective of professors um, that I work with in the university. And it just seemed really strikingly absent. So we, we, are, we do a good job around, um, you know, helping people come into their sexuality and into their um, gender identity. But what about their reproductive identity? And I found actually that a lot of the confusion for women um, about their own experiences transitioning is is maybe they might not have explored that early on. So a lot of the, let's say, students in my class, it kind of ended up being like an ad hoc sex ed class, right? So we were studying about mothers, but then they started to scratch their head and go, hmm, I don't know if I want to be a mother. Do I want to be a mother? I'm confused. I'm not so sure. I'm scared maybe of, of you know, having issues with fertility. Well, now that I think about it, um, I did have complications, you know, um, early on when I first came into, um, you know, my menstruation, so on and so forth. So that's a whole other uh, ball of yarn, (laughs) but it expands it in short so that I want to welcome everyone to the table. Um, Men, men and women, for example, again, I know that's a gender binary, but those with and without children to, to be able to name their reproductive identity and say, this is how I identify. This is how I self identify. And just because I look like something on the outside doesn't mean that's what I am on the inside. So Maybe I've lost a child and you don't see me walking around with a child, but internally I'm very much a parent. Um, And maybe on the outside, or maybe I've had an infertility journey and it hasn't culminated um, and and that's internally how I feel. Or I may have a child, but very much regret it. And internally I I don't feel yet like a parent. So these things are complex. Um, They're internal and they're not only what we look like on the outside. so in terms of, um, you know, trying to create an arena for people to study this, there are kind of some places to do it, um, not very many. Um, I'm proud to uh, call Teachers College um, my home, and it's the place where we have a course on matrescence, one on perinatal mental health, hopefully one soon on reproductive identity development. Um, and we train, we also have a lot of, a lot of you know, hot research going on and a lot of active training. We're training um, a whole host of sexual health educators um, on the term of reproductive identity so they can start talking to to youth and to their adult clients about um, this term, which is also very taboo at at times. People, you know, like sex and money. It's kind of hard to talk about. Um, And for those who, who, you know, um, you know, are not living in the area and um, can't avail themselves of the coursework all the time, I also do try and, and, and help educate them in other ways. And, um, uh, and then of course I have uh, my own private practice, which I I try to keep, um, you know, to be um, part of the conversation. I'm very much a clinician, practitioner, researcher, meaning I like to apply what I, I learn about in my research with my clients. And then I bring a lot of what I learn from my clients into my classroom. So thank you very much for having me and, um, and for shining a light on this work. And I'm so excited for all that you do in this space as well. Oh, thank you, Aurelie. Fascinating. Um, yeah, I'm really fascinated. I did have a little flick through your paper on reproductive development and identity. And uh, yeah, it's so important and it all ties in. I think the earlier that people are having these conversations and looking at this, um, and the more it becomes part of the community conversation, the better. So yeah, thank you so much for your time. I'll pop all those links up um, in the in the podcast notes. 
And who knows, I might try and uh, rope you in in a year or so to come and talk about <laughs> reproductive identity because you've really got my brain ticking on that. But um, take care and thank you again for all your work. Thank you. And I'm game because now we have, we need people such as yourself to now get this other term out there. Uh oh. Yeah. <laughs> what have I got myself into? <laughs> one begin again so thank you so much and um please let's keep in touch thanks for tuning in i hope you enjoyed that as always we'd love for you to contact us and share any ideas you have for future podcasts and to share that with friends and family or anyone who might get something from the podcast leaving a review on itunes is really helpful as well because it helps us uh, be seen and share what we're passionate about more thank you